Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, did you call a mother figure in your life today? If not, you better get on it. Today is Mother's Day, one of the most popular annual holidays in the U.S., honoring moms and momhood, a celebration which dates back to 1908. But amidst the happy festivities, Mother's Day can be a painful reminder for some would-be moms who are unable to become or stay pregnant. These days, however, because of advancements in medical technology and awareness about infertility, more people are turning to so-called third-party reproduction methods, such as sperm, egg, and embryo donors, as well as gestational surrogates. Later in the show, if you had a favorite meal growing up, chances are it's one your mother made for you. We hear from three Boston restaurateurs who got their start cooking their mother's signature recipes. But first, joining me from the NPR New York Bureau, Dr. Kim Bergman, licensed psychologist and senior partner at the surrogacy and egg donation agency, Growing Generations. She is the author of Your Future Family, The Essential Guide to Assisted Reproduction. Hello, Dr. Bergman. Hello. Glad to have you. Joining me in the studio, Heather Mancini and Dan Peluso from Danvers, Massachusetts. Heather is a professional photographer, and Dan is the vice president of Shamut Communications Group. Heather and Dan have two daughters together. Their second pregnancy was carried by a gestational surrogate. Welcome, Heather and Dan. Hello. Thank you. Glad to have you both. So, Kim, I'm going to start with you because I think when we hear surrogacy, we don't quite understand where it fits in what you have just described as third, or I've just described as third-party reproduction. So, first, explain how all of this fits together of a piece, and then I'd like to know how it's changed in our thinking about it from, let's say, 10 years ago. Sure. Thanks for asking. Well, so we we call it third-party assisted reproduction because it's literally assisted by an outside party, whether that's just a reproductive endocrinologist who's helping a couple get pregnant through IVF or using other third parties such as a surrogate or an egg donor. And in those cases, also a lawyer, a psychologist, an entire team of people all collaborating, coming together so that somebody can realize their dream of parenthood. And, you know, there was a point where people thought, that sounds just otherworldly. But now, um, I think it's more commonplace. I, I don't know that if if it's mentioned in just regular conversation, people don't know what it is. How has that changed over, let's say, the last 10 years? Well, I think people definitely have a better understanding. There certainly are still some misconceptions. But I think overall, you know, there's been celebrities and people in the news and news stories, some good most good, a few not, but that has 
brought into the open what surrogacy is. There are still misconceptions, so people don't understand completely the mechanics, but um, it has changed a great deal. And it's changed in people's perceptions, partly because it's changed in reality. So medicine has become so much better, the technology making it much more successful. The legal landscape has changed so that it's safe and legal. And there are many, many women who are wanting to help couples fulfill that dream. That's my guest, Dr. Kim Bergman. She's a licensed psychologist and senior partner at the Surrogacy and Egg Donation Agency, Growing Generations. Now over to you, Dan and Heather. Dan, you guys, first pregnancy, no problem, sailing along. And then Heather, all of a sudden you're faced with uh, a lot of problems with infertility. Yes. I'm going to start with you, Heather, about were you just shocked by that? I was shocked. Mm. Um, being able to have our child effortlessly, having a great delivery here in Boston, brought her home. Everything was splendid. And then trying to conceive about a year after she was born, I, I wasn't expecting that difficulty. And reaching out to friends and family that had done IVF, I said, well, maybe this is the next route for us. And then after failed attempts at that, I was kind of left in the dark thinking, well, what's next? Or is there anything next? Do we accept the one child and move on and enjoy that experience? And then you were actually the one that started the inquiry around what is really officially called gestational surrogacy. We know it Correct. more as surrogacy. And because Heather was, you know, not really feeling it at the moment, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, Kim is right. There are a lot of still misconceptions out there. Mm -hmm. And of course, my due diligence on that side started on the Internet. Um, and there's a lot of good information, but, you know, there's some not so good as well. In our case, I think we were very fortunate because I had one of my vendors from my work who I had known uh, had a baby boy through surrogacy. So I reached out to her and she told me all about her story, which involved, you know, cervical cancer and having her uterus removed and it was very emotional. But she really set me up with kind of the, the roadmap in terms of um, the emotional part of the experience, some of the financial burden. And it was just a it was a great experience for me to introduce that to Heather before we really started that first step. Exactly. I felt as though my body failed me. Mm -hmm. um, I was running a marathon and they just kept moving the finish line. And I thought, I just have to accept it's not going to happen. And then I turned to Dan and I said, you can be supportive in this journey. And he said, I'm taking it from here, mm -hmm. which I give him a lot of credit. It felt like a whole different country. We were getting off a plane in a foreign country and exploring something that I couldn't imagine how a surrogate or a woman would carry someone else's child when I wanted one so badly. Just kind of didn't make sense to me at the time. Did either of you think about it as weird? I mean, before it came into your life. Now, Dan, you said you had the vendor, uh, friend, acquaintances to so who had walked through it with you. Mm -hmm. But but before this, before your own experience, would you have would you have thought this is weird? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> what no. kind of woman exactly would carry someone else's child? I I kept thinking, are they doing it for financial reasons? Are they doing it? It's it's a woman at home that's bored that has a large family of herself and and. I just couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand and it. And that's really one of the things that's most amazing about it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but in getting to know our gestational carrier and her husband, who was just as much a, a part of the experience as she was, we got to find out that they were just really, really good people that wanted to help another couple, and she had two really positive, uh, great pregnancies before getting into this journey herself. So we came 
upon an experience and a journey that we weren't even aware was out mm. there. I think we were meant to have this journey, and I was resisting it for so long, but it was written in the stars, I think. Well, um, those are my guests, Heather Mancini and Dan Peluso from Danvers, Massachusetts. Their second daughter, Katerina, was born through gestational surrogacy. I want to play a clip now. This is uh, Todd Tucker. He is the husband of Candy Burris on The Real Housewives of Atlanta, and I'm playing it because this, I believe, is sort of the feeling that most people have about surrogacy. He and Candy on the show are beginning to think about surrogacy, and here is his response. You ready to move forward with the surrogate process? I don't know if I want to be a part of the process. What do you mean you don't want to be a part of the like, process? I think I just want the kids to come, but I don't know if I want to see this lady carrying her kid. Well, this that's is... something you really need to figure out. You know, who has a surrogate? Like, I'm from the Bronx. Like... So I thought that was, I heard that and I thought, I'm from the Bronx. Who is a surrogate? You know, that sort of got right to it. Uh, Dr. Bergman, yeah, I bet you've heard that many times. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, surrogates are truly the most amazing, most generous giving people. But they're also really well screened. So wanting to be a surrogate and having the ability to be pregnant doesn't make a person a surrogate. There's about a six-month screening process. Only about 2% of the women who want to be surrogates and apply to be surrogates will be surrogates. And it's a very strange, abstract concept that you can't quite understand until you're sitting across from them. What Heather and Dan have described is absolutely normal. In the abstract, it is almost impossible to imagine another human being who's willing to do something that is a pretty big sacrifice, a long commitment. For the duration of the journey for a surrogate, it's a, it's, it can be two years long, if you include the screening and trying to get pregnant legal contracts, why are they willing to do this? And I'm going to bet that Heather and Dan will confirm that until you meet your surrogate in person and you start to talk to her and she becomes real for you right in front of you, it's very hard to conceive of who would do this. But once you do meet her and talk to her and understand why she's doing it, it actually becomes the most normal, natural, obvious thing. And that's that's who surrogates are. But it is an enigma in the abstract, for sure. And Dr. Bergman, you are a licensed psychologist. So some yes. part of this vetting and um, mm -hmm. working with people in that six months where you're trying to figure out, are they uh, good persons to be involved in this process? You really have to deal with the psychological aspects of this, right? Yes. So the surrogates have a whole series of screenings, medical, complete physical blood work. They also have background checks. We look at their taxes and pay stubs because we do require that they are at a financial threshold. Their health insurance is vetted to make sure that they're, they've got good coverage. And then they have a full battery of psychological screenings, including their partner, husband, or their support people. So there are a lot of steps in the screening, and the psychological is definitely part of it. But surprisingly enough, it's not complex. So if I'm sitting with a woman and it seems complex and she's not quite there, she's actually not going to make it. We're not trying to do, you know, six months of counseling so somebody can be a surrogate. We're trying to determine that she's got the right mindset from the beginning, that she's a good candidate to be a surrogate. And then, of course, we provide psychological support throughout the process, but it's really just support because it's such a strange process to do something so intimate and so private with, you know, kind of a whole team of people mm -hmm. surrounding you and your body not quite your own. 
Well, I thought a clip from the place that you work, Dr. Bergman, uh, Growing Generations, was mm -hmm. really uh, helpful. Uh, these are the people who were the surrogate uh, parents, if you will, or the surrogates for the parents. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to play a clip so that you get a sense of where they felt they were in the process. So here is a clip from Growing Generations' website on finding a surrogate. The point where Lisa started to push, the uh, intended father was there, and I said, listen, come on around and, and you know, be a part of this. This is, you're never going to see your son born again. So think of that. Think of the, that not that you're looking at my wife give birth. You're looking at your son be born. And that's just a different way to see it. And that's how I saw it. To be there with him as his son is born. And that's what it was to me. And as I understand it, both uh, Heather and Dan, the minute you connected with the person that was going to do the same thing that this gentleman spoke about, that his wife did, you could feel that, that connection, and then you work from there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We had a video chat. It was kind of like a first date, a little bit mm -hmm. of butterflies, but after about a three-hour conversation, like Kim had said, it just felt so natural, which something that originally felt so foreign to us felt so natural. And I think one of the things that was most amazing about it, I mean, we could obviously, you know, feel the vibe from Elizabeth and why she was doing what she was doing and why she wanted to be part of, of our experience. But we equally felt the same kind of love and nurturing from Sean, her husband, mm -hmm. in that same call. And uh, to us, that was something that I think we didn't necessarily expect. And I think you hear it in that the voice of that gentleman who's the husband of the gestational carrier in that clip. So I was speaking to Dr. Bergman about, you know, the psychological health of the potential surrogate. But you also have to be, you two have to be in a, in a place that you can ride out a long-term experience, really. Because it's, it's not six months. It's not maybe longer than a year, and it was for the two of you. You have to be ready, right? About two years, I, yeah. I think. Yeah, just you have to years, surrender yeah. to the experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we had so much disappointment. That was our expectation. And then when we kept getting positive news, when I got the call that our surrogate was pregnant, I called her first, even before Dan. I was just so excited to bond with her in that moment. It was an amazing feeling. So you have to just trust the process, which is scary. It's out of your control. We were there for several appointments. Dan actually was there for the birth mm. and got to do the skin on skin. It was amazing, amazing. I would agree with Heather. I think if I was asked the most difficult part of it, I would say kind of surrendering to the unknown. Mm. And, you know, as we found out Elizabeth was pregnant and we were working, you know, behind the scenes, Heather and I were very tentative and reserved because through our own experiences, the heartbeat was the big kind of milestone and we were never able to achieve that ourselves. So as we got closer to the heartbeat and the ultrasound was the following week, you know, we got a call. I got a call from Sean during the day, which I thought was strange. And he said, hey, Elizabeth just called me and she's frantic and, you know, she's bleeding and having some cramps. And long story short, everything was fine. Come to find out six hours later. Um, but she had had a subchronic hematoma and um, it looked like to us that she was miscarrying. So we had already set ourselves up for that failure. So to find out that they came out of the hospital and they called us, um, they said, hey, we just want to let you guys know we just heard the baby's heartbeat. I mean, what a 180 and emotional um, a wave of euphoria yeah. you can't explain. That mm -hmm. was a, a milestone for us. Absolutely. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Dr. Kim Bergman of the Surrogacy and Egg Donation Agency Growing Generations, and Heather Mancini and Dan Peluso, you just heard them, who recently had their second daughter through a gestational surrogate. We're discussing gestational surrogacy and third-party reproduction in honor of Mother's Day. So what do you think people need to know? Dr. Bergman has been very clear that there are some mis conceptions about this from the side of the parents entering into what we have just described as a long process and one that can take you up and down emotionally, potentially. Um, what is it, the one key thing that people need to know as they, they enter into this experience? I would say being positive throughout the process. Absolutely. And that's something that I was lacking. And Dan went forth and did the research to get us to the next step. Also, the communication between your partner. He stepped up when I was down. I think that helped immensely. And the process can be a long process. For us, it was two years. For other couples, it may be four. But know at the end of it, you will absolutely get there. Just having that faith and believing you will get there is so important. Yeah, I think that's perfectly well said. You know, certainly there's a lot of different times throughout the experience where you want to look forward. But you really can't put the cart before the horse. You know, you have to take things one at a time, knowing what the end goal is. And for us, the the part of, you know, Elizabeth becoming pregnant and the gestational carrier surrogacy experience was really actually kind of the smoothest part of our entire ride. So and the other thing I would say is certainly you have to be ready for the financial part of it. Um, yes, it's costly. You want yeah. to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So certainly, you know, again, uh, my vendor helped kind of lay that out for me there. And depending on the agencies that tended parents work with, they're usually pretty flexible and trying to help you out and get you, whether it's a payment plan or something, but you know, it can run up to depending on, you know, what you're doing exactly up to a six figures cost. So it has to be something that you, you know, prepare for financially and make sure your family is ready for that, for that burden. But for us, you know, we were just so focused on making it happen and, you know, kind of cashing out whatever we could to have little Katerina be part of our family. So um, how do you think this has expanded the conversation, or do you think, I want all three of you to answer this, around infertility? Because my sense is that people have thought in the past of infertility quite narrowly, you know, just can't have a baby, that's the end of that, and, you know. But as we know now, there's a broad way to understand infertility and how it may impact uh, any given woman. What, what would you say, Heather? I would say everyone will first say try IVF, mm -hmm. and then if that doesn't work, well, what about adoption? No one talked to us about surrogacy. And when we mentioned it to friends and family, they said, oh, isn't that what movie stars do? Mm. So I felt as though it had that type of reputation. And it's an absolute wonderful route for whoever is interested in it. And it's something that we never did consider until a couple years ago. Yeah, and there, there's certainly, for whatever reason, and I think kind of Kim touched on this, there, there are still some stigma and misconceptions that are out there. And I can understand because it's kind of something that, you know, again, abstract is kind of hard to see. But once you're in it, I mean, we wouldn't trade this experience for anything in the world. And, you know, Elizabeth and Sean have become family to us, you know, and certainly I don't know if every single experience would be like that, but I think the majority of them would be in terms of who these type of people are that would make such a selfless sacrifice to help another couple out like ourselves. So Dr. Bergman, on your part, just in an overarching way, how has this expanded the conversation both about, about infertility and about gestational surrogacy, or really, it, because what you've talked about is a broader thing, uh, assisted reproduction? Well, I think that, as Heather said, it's certainly more options available now. 
And it did used to be much more of a dead end if you couldn't conceive on your own. I agree with her. People would suggest adoption. People don't understand that that isn't easy and it isn't viable for everybody. But the reality is that if you want to be a parent, there are many routes to that. And it doesn't mean that necessarily using a surrogate and and or an egg donor is your first choice. It may be for most people, for most heterosexual couples, for sure, it's plan B or C or D at best. But as you move through the stages, the normal stages of grief, when you realize that you may have to go to some extraordinary measures to become a parent, my experience is that most people do move through those stages, grieve the loss of maybe a genetic connection or maybe being able to carry their own baby or both, and do move to a place of feeling very hopeful and feeling very positive. And, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years. I have seen many, many, many different situations. And I know that people end up with the child they're meant to have. And the route to that baby and the route to that parenthood is is not always a straight line. And it's not always what people expected. But it is very very doable if, if, as Heather said, you don't give up hope and you keep going. Now, how do you respond to people who say, listen, you've said you're meant to have the child you're meant to have. If you're not meant to have it, just stop. And what you're doing beyond that with all this technology is really not, I'm using air quotes you can't see, normal. <laughs> uh, um, how do you respond to that, Dr. Bergman? Well, I, I think, you know, when I say that you, you end up with the child you're meant to have, I'm not preordaining a person to the path they're on. You know, we're human beings. We have a lot of free will and a lot of choice. We also have science and technology. And if we're going to throw it away for people who are dealing with infertility, then we would have to consider throwing it away for every other kind of medical issue, which, of course, we're not going to do. So, you know, we're fortunate to live in a world where there there is intervention for many, many things. Um, people don't have to die of things that they had to die from 100 years ago, and people can prevent and avoid things that weren't preventable in the past. And this is another one of those things. How do you two respond to that? Because I'm sure you've heard it one more than once. So many people said, well, you have a child of your own. Why Mm -hmm. are you pushing this? Why are you doing this? It just felt right for us. Both of us being close to our siblings, we said this is the life we envisioned for us. And whatever journey we're ready and prepared to be on, on it. And for couples that just starting out that don't have children of their own, it's a wonderful but scary journey. And I completely feel as though at the end of the process, it will be something they were never prepared for, but something they'll be so grateful for. How do you push back against people saying, well, it's not, quote, normal? We heard that so many times. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with with, with Kim. I mean, I think it's, you know, we, we feel very blessed to be able to have had this medical technology available to us to be able to expand our family. So, you know, I mean, for those people that have that type of kind of negative feedback to it, I guess, you know, this type of journey is certainly not for you. But for us, it was became very normal because we were faced with, you know, the depths of depression and arguments and you know really even though we loved our daughter and we still love her very much you know we really always had dreamed of having that bigger family and the the joy that Katerina has brought us in three short months is absolutely incredulous so and we both had family members that were older great aunts and uncles that we were just told oh they could never have children 
And we both heard those stories. And now we feel so fortunate we are in this time. If you do want it, it is available to you. So, Dr. Bergman, you have a not only uh, an expertise in this area, and you've been working in it as to 30 years, as you said, but a personal experience with it as well. Do you want to share? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I have two wonderful daughters. We had them with the use of a sperm donor. And they are 20 and 23 years old now, so um, it was quite a, a while ago when it was definitely not easy. We were pioneers. We had to turn to sort of an underground to get help. We were told things like, um, I'll try to make it appropriate for, for radio. Um, Please. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we, we were told things like, go, um, you know, connect and, and have sex and, you know, just don't tell the person you're mm. trying to get pregnant, you know, things like that. I mean, we, by doctors. Um, wow. By doctors? Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, So, you know, I mean, a lot has changed in 25 years, and thankfully it has. And I'm very proud to be part of that change in doing a lot of outreach and education. And, you know, frankly, that's why I wrote this book, because I felt like I had sort of a lifetime of information, both personal and professional, that I wanted to be able to share with people in a pretty broad level. But, you know, my kids are fantastic. They know that they were conceived with the use of an anonymous sperm donor. Our sperm donor is what's called an open identity donor. So that means that when they turned 18, they could reach out to him. They are now 20 and 23, and neither one of them has. They don't feel like they want that, but they know that it's there if they do. You know, it's a wonderful, amazing journey. And, you know, like Heather and Dan, I would have stopped at nothing to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And I, I try, you know, it took a long time and a lot of intervention, and I would not have quit until I had my baby. I should mention that your book, Your Future Family, The Essential Guide to Assisted Reproduction, reminds me of some of the early books that talked real talk about what it means to be pregnant, because it's a real essential guide. There are some stories of people and how they experienced assisted reproduction, but basically you really walk people through so that you could demythologize, I guess is the way to put it, what the process is like and, and what the the benefits are like as well. Um, and I'm not sure I've seen another book in this way, which is why I was interested in it, talking to you about oh, thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. One of the things that has that um, the family members or the families that have been expanded as a result of assisted reproduction are, are couples who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Mm-hmm. This has been an opportunity for them. And sometimes we when we think about surrogacy in that way, we th- we only think of them in, of the stars because I'm thinking about Andy Cohen of Bravo uh, that a lot of people would know, and he got a lot of attention when he had his son Benjamin uh, through a gestational surrogate, and he spent some time actually talking about that so to try to help people understand the process and why he decided to do it. But talk about we talked about a little bit about the influence of pop culture, and but I'd like you to speak to that, Dr. Bergman. I mean, it's. With all things that seem a bit out of the ordinary to people, pop culture helps pave the way. I mean, in general, for if just if you even think about just in general LGBTQ community um, media images that now if you look back, like Ellen, for example, coming Mm -hmm. out seems kind of crazy that it was such a big controversial thing in light of the way that we look at it now. Yes, there's still quite a bit of discrimination, but it's also 
the level of acceptance and the ubiquitous nature of LGBTQ population has definitely been influenced by media. This is the same. You know, I think that people do, it does become somewhat normalized and, of course, at the same time, somewhat sensationalized when it's a celebrity. But it shows itself in that it's something that can happen. And, you know, with celebrities, with anybody, but with celebrities, because they're in the, in the limelight, you know, all bets are off. People do have opinions and they offer unsolicited advice. And that is very typical when it comes to pregnancy and baby making. Everybody has an opinion. But I think that in the end, whenever we have media icons coming out and sharing their stories, it helps. Well, I want to also point out that we are having this conversation literally days after a woman with a uterus transplant uh, down at Baylor University has just announced that she had a successful implantation and will be able to have a child in October. This was the fourth attempt. I mean, it was a long, long process. She could not get pregnant even though she had regular periods because she had a a disease, a congenital disorder. And um, since 16, she's known she wouldn't be able to to carry. So this is an amazing amount, another step Mm -hmm. in assisted reproduction. And a lot has been made of it. So we are at a time uh, when much is changing. But here's what I, I want to talk to you about as we end this conversation, uh, Heather and Dan, and that's something that hasn't changed, which is just the feeling of being parents. So when you first tell little Katerina, just tell me what that experience was like for both of you and why you're just beaming, both of you. I I wish people could see you <laughs> as we talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly, I think euphoric is a good way that you put it earlier. You know, in terms of what we talked about earlier and and the normalcy of it, I mean, what is normal nowadays? You know, when you're giving life to a couple or, you know, to people, good people who want it, the love. I mean, we have a picture that was taken of us when Heather first arrived and I gave Katerina to Heather that just speaks volumes to the beauty of this experience. It was it was a dim light for years, for six years of trying. I just kept looking through a, a dim tunnel and seeing the light at the end. And then walking into that room, I was almost blinded when I saw her. Mm. I was in a bubble. I didn't hear or see or anything. I just felt this warm body against mine. And I said, this is what was meant to be. This is home. It was amazing. Not amazing. to mention, I don't know if we just kind of hit the lottery, but she's been sleeping through the night since day two. <laughs> <laughs> wow. She is just a little okay, angel. Okay, you're going to have yes. some people hating you. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to jinx it. Finally, someone who's listening to this um, who's in the middle of the process, and maybe it's at a, one of those low points that you were at at the point thinking, was this worth it? Should I have? And I don't know if I feel like it's so normal and, and right for me. What, what do you say? I felt like I didn't have a group to speak throughout this whole process. Friends and family knew, but no one beyond this. And even extended friends were very surprised when we announced the birth. I kept feeling like it possibly wasn't going to happen until it actually happened. And I was so elated to share the news. So I feel as though if we talk more about this and embrace the families that are going through this, it would be so much more supportive and positive for their journeys. But there's such a stigma to it. And for years, I didn't talk about it. But I think we need that support in the community. I think we can't be afraid to share our stories and can't be afraid to explain that they're going through infertility as a couple. I mean, infertility is is a dirty word. Nobody likes to talk about it. And understandably so, because it's just so emotional, each part of it. And then each failure. And, you know, I think I I told Heather that 
my favorite part of the birth with Katarina was every time I would hear congratulations, congratulations. Mm -hmm. And when it's so easy and you do it so naturally, a lot of times you appreciate those, but you appreciate it at a whole different level when you go through something like like we did. So, you know, we've decided to become kind of advocates in the community and talk to people that are going through it. And, you know, I, I had a, uh, I was on a panel uh, the week before last at the agency that we used, and it was a wonderful experience to talk to parents that are just looking into it, some of them going into it with the struggles that they're facing, to be able to see a couple like us that was able to do it so successfully. And, and we want to be part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Bergman, last word. You can be a parent. Just keep your eye on the end goal. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. But there's a whole team of people supporting you. And keep your eye on that end goal because it will happen. And with third-party assisted reproduction, it nearly always happens if you don't give up. Well, thank you all for joining me in this conversation. Happy Mother's Day, Heather. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Kim Bergman is a licensed psychologist and senior partner at the surrogacy and egg donation agency, Growing Generations. She is the author of Your Future Family, The Essential Guide to Assisted Reproduction, which is available for purchase in stores and online now. Heather Mancini and Dan Peluso are the parents of Maria and Katerina. Katerina was carried by a gestational surrogate and was born in January. Coming up, whether she taught you just a few recipes to survive in college or inspired a lifelong love for the culinary arts, mom may be your first exposure to cooking. Three Boston restaurant owners and chefs join us to talk about their mother's recipes, which have become the basis of their menus and careers. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Many of our earliest memories revolve around sharing meals and the tastes of home. And often at the heart of those memories is the woman who lovingly prepared those foods, your mother. Mom's cooking is often the subject of a lot of bragging, as in, it's good, but it's not like mom made. Now some local food entrepreneurs have built their businesses by adapting their mother's yummy recipes and sharing them with the foodie public. Joining me now in the studio, Blonde Beauchamp, founder of This Haiti, formerly known as The Crake and Blonde, Boston-based Haitian specialty food company. Welcome, Blonde. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you. Emily Chen, co-owner of Double Chen, which has been serving up Chinese dishes with a modern twist in Boston Chinatown since 2016. Hello, Emily. Hello. It's so great to be here today. I'm loving having you. Also with me, Margarita Corretto, chef at the Mexican pop-up restaurant Mr. Tomole. Welcome, Margarita. Hello, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have all of you because it's just so inspiring to me that you all have uh, grown up at your mom's knees, so to speak, and taken note and then gone on to make a career out of what you learned in in mom's kitchen. So let's go around the horn and each of you tell me what you remember of your mom's cooking. I'll start with you, Margarita. 
Well, what I remember is always was cooking. The kitchen was full of big pots of beans and big pots of everything. It was about the kitchen making wonderful food to feed us, five children. And also my parents had a side business, and she also fed the employees. So you can imagine it was a lot of work and a lot of enjoying of the smelling and tasting and long hours of cooking. How old were you when you first started working with her in the kitchen or learning how to cook? Well, my mother used, I'm the youngest one of five, the youngest one of three sisters. So I had it much easier than my other two sisters, (laughs) I have to say. But I started, you know, setting up the table, cooking, cleaning, chopping. I can say at seven, eight years Mm -hmm. old, maybe younger, but yes, around seven and eight That's my guest, Margarita Corretto. She is a chef at a Mexican pop-up restaurant, Mr. Tamole. Okay, now over to you, Blonde. What do you remember of your mom's cooking and being in the kitchen? My memories actually start with not even just my mom in the kitchen. It was always a kitchen full of other women. So my parents used to uh, help other Haitians when they were transitioning into the U.S. They would help them. uh, They'd provide a place for them until it becomes financially stable to leave. So my kitchen was always full of other women who were also cooking. Either they were visiting or they lived with us. And then there would be suitcases that would be full of items that were smuggled in from Haiti. So either sugar cane or other little cooking herbs. But my memory actually always goes back to me seeing the way the women moved. And it was like they were dancing. So for whatever reason, I feel like I formed music to seeing them cooking. Mm. So food and music just seemed to go together naturally because there is a rhythm in the kitchen that I feel like I noticed as a child. So I love what I saw in the kitchen in the way people came together, even though I always loved food and my mom didn't really encourage me in cooking, but I couldn't resist to be in there and see them. I don't know why it always felt like I'd see hip swing because these women were very curvy (laughs) and I'd see the hip swing and I'd see the movements. There were a lot of chatter. There were arms crossing over each other, um, over pots or over cutting, whatever it was, whatever surface area there was in the kitchen, it was covered in food and there were always arms around it. So yeah. It It drew you in. How old were you when you first started helping out in the kitchen? Um, I don't know. Maybe I was, I, I think I was in there as young as six, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I could remember mm-hmm. seeing Sense myself memory. as. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very good. All right. Over to you, Emily Chen. <laughs> Tell me about remembrances in your mom's kitchen. Yeah. I mean, my family would always hang around in the kitchen where all the food was. Like Margarita, where my family had other businesses in Chinatown, particularly we had a grocery store. And one of the things I appreciate most about my mom is that she would have just like the most incredible ways to use the produce that was going bad. In a supermarket, it's inevitable you have fruits that are going bad and vegetables are going bad. And it's just like we have a market, but we always eat the, the worst parts. <laughs> that really gave me creativity to be very resourceful and crafting special dishes with very little. I remember very vividly like having these soups and bone broths made of fruits and like apple mm. soup or pear soup and like people are like what do you mean fruit soup and it's <laughs> it's so unique to my mom but I love it. <laughs> well, how old were you when you were in the kitchen with her? I think around 7 or 8 or so. Yeah, from very early on me and my sister Gloria, my co-owner would 
craft these like big feasts for my family. It would start with simple pastas and they would critique us like restaurant. I'm like, oh no, this is like too overcooked or this is too salty. Like you could do better. <laughs> and it was this like constant environment of motivating us to do better and improve our cooking skills that really helped us today. So all three of you took those memories, observed what was going on, and then picked some recipes and started to build a business around it. And I wanted to, before we get into each of your stories about it, just play a little clip from Mama Fuku founder David Chang. So people may know him. He's very well known. He's got, I don't know how many restaurants now. I've forgotten how many. And he has a show on Netflix called Ugly Delicious. And this is him speaking to his mom about how he learned to cook her recipes. I don't understand. How can you so cook very good? It's true. You never taught me how to cook one thing. No. In my house, he's the baby king. The baby king? Yeah, so we not, we not teach you food. I mean, honestly, all the recipes that I make today that are inspired by you, it's only because I've seen you do it a thousand times. I made my first pindedok last year. Oh, yeah? No recipe. Really? But I knew how to do it. I remember all your tricks. <laughs> That's David Chang from the uh, Netflix series Ugly Delicious. I love that clip because I yeah. just love the, uh, the repartee between he and his mom. So, again, going back around the horn, but starting with you, Emily Chin, what recipe did you take from your mom and start building a business? I know your family was already in business, but, but when you and your sister decided to really branch off and do double chin, what, what did you take from your mom's recipes and build on Sure. There's so many. It's so hard to tease out like which recipes are for my mom. But one dish that really stands out to me is the stir fried shin ramen. Mm. It's a very simple dish. Like, we ate instant noodles all the time growing up because it's so convenient and easily available. But there's always ways to make it creative. And sh the presentation of food was always so important. And so we serve it with the instant ramen cup. It just brings back so many memories to our childhood. And the flavors, and it's just like a delicious dish with chicken and full of vegetables. It's healthy, as healthy as ramen can be. <laughs> <laughs> and that is one that other people really respond to in your restaurant? Yeah, it's very popular. Okay. I think with the noodles, and it's such a comforting dish with bold flavors, but served with the instant noodle cup on the plate. It's just, I think it triggers a lot of memories for um, Asian American folks. Oh, yeah. And a lot of us, the rest yeah. of us, too. <laughs> uh, that's my guest, Emily Chin, of the restaurant Double Chin. Blonde Beauchamp, uh, what recipe did you take from your mom and start building out your business? So my mom never wrote recipes. Everything I've watched her make, she's made from memory. So my mother didn't teach me how to cook, even though I really wanted to learn. She wasn't encouraging me to be in the kitchen. But when she saw I had a stubbornness about me and I would ask questions, then she would give me feedback and say, yes, that tastes right or no, that doesn't taste right. So I was living in Ireland. And while I was there, I was just having this desperate need to have the home cooked foods my mom makes. So when I started to make some dishes that I didn't try making while at home, but of course now that I was far away, I would Skype her and she'd help me with figuring out, you know, or make sure you do this, you know, steps. But it wasn't, this is a recipe to follow. Mm -hmm. It has to taste this way. It has to look that way. The texture, you know, the flavor, the balance, make sure it has acid, throwing some lime. But it was also a reverse engineering of the flavors for me, especially. So if I would make something and I would have to measure it against my memory of, is this what I remember it tasting like? Is this what I loved about it? And I would make adjustments that way. So it was always a reverse engineering of the dish 
remembering what it should taste like and trying to recreate that. So I should say that you were in Ireland getting your MBA. So that was one of the reasons your mother wasn't too hot on your going into the food business. She thought, you're going to business school, do something else, <laughs> right? But here you are, founder of This Haiti. Tell me about the pickles. that is a recipe that I know came from some of that tasting that, yeah. of your mom. Yeah, so interesting. When I started the business and I told her, I said, Mommy, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a Haitian food business. She laughed. She was like, No, you didn't that's not where you went to school. Go to corporate America. So Pickles is quintessential to the Haitian cuisine. Nearly every Haitian household will have pickles. Everyone will have their own variation of it. And even mine is a variation of what my mom would have made. But it's still close enough where you would say this is her interpretation of pickles, mm. but it is still pickles. And they're pickled. They're very spicy pickles, just for people. Know yeah. So it's cabbage. My blend is cabbage, carrot, shallots, and habanero peppers. Yeah, it's pickled in vinegar. In Haiti, it's pickled with, or I should say, it's made with lime juice or sour oranges, um, which you don't find here very easily. Uh, so in the States, we'll use vinegar, but it has a nice kick. That's so, a nice kick. I love it. Yes. Yeah, I love spicy. So, you know, <laughs> I'm good. For, it's good for me. Over to you, Margarita Corretto. Now, your Mexican pop-up restaurant really came from your son pushing you to go ahead and combine a couple of favorites that we may know, tamales and mole, and the mole you got from your mom. Exactly. That's why we name Mr. Tamole instead of Mr. Tamal, because mm. our family passed down recipe, mole sas. I remember, you know, when I was seven or eight, being in my grandparents' house, it was my grandfather's birthday, and they had this huge pot that a man could fit in. And, you know, making mole in that scale, it was... The recipe was not written down. It was always under hats. My grandmother started with the mole recipe and then passed it down to my mother. My mother sized it down. And that's when my son came to me, let's make tamales and let's make mole because it's so rich, has 24 ingredients, originally had 40. So it's it's a big process. It's a big process. And the same question that I asked my mom and said, how do you do this? How do you do that? Oh, you just have to do this very well. You have to clean them well, boil them, mortar with a metate, which I don't know how to handle. A metate is <laughs> like the mortar to make salsas, but this is a bigger piece. And I just use a electric grinder <laughs> and it the flavor changes uh-huh. i have to say mm-hmm. but anyway it's a joy to making this food for the family to sit down and, and enjoy a wonderful tasteful dish it's art I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with three Boston-area food entrepreneurs. You just heard from Margarita Corretto of Mr. Tamole, Blonde Beauchamp of This Haiti, and Emily Chin of Double Chin. And we're talking about recipes from their mother in honor of Mother's Day that they have now turned into part of their businesses. So you started on the path, Margarita, to talk about uh, something I want to ask all of you. Do you feel like you have the spirit of your moms, even though you've all adapted the recipes, you're building a business, you're sharing it with the rest of us, um, which we all love, we foodies. Do you feel, Emily, like your mom's spirit is with you when you make even the adapted recipes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as everyone has touched upon, there were no recipes that were passed down. There's no index cards of how much this and how much that. It was the spirit and the the energy of how to 
you know, cook in the kitchen. And it's that appreciation for food and for family gatherings and for preparing meals for your family that that spirit always goes on. Unfortunately, my mom is no longer here with us today, but it's it's that drive that inspires me every day. And that creativity that she had, you know, in the grocery store trying to think of like, how do, what do I do with all these rotten fruits? That is something that I carry with me all the time. How do I be more creative? How do I push myself in the kitchen to make something special? Was she alive to see you all, you and your sister, begin to build your business? She So she actually started the process of opening a bakery where Double Chin co, um, shares a space, Babo Bakery. It's right next door. But unfortunately, she passed away from lung cancer before Double Chin opened. And by the way, Double Chin, I should just mention to people, is is it still number one on Uber Eats? It's one of the it's one of the most popular uh, restaurants that people order from wow. through Uber yeah, Eats. Um, that's Thank how you. I first heard about it. Then I of course <laughs> love the name Double Chin. That's Congrats. so clever. <laughs> so blonde, uh, same thing for you. Are you channeling your mom's spirit? Even though she didn't want you to go that way, right? She didn't, <laughs> but she's my number one fan, my number one cheerleader. She is extremely supportive. I'm going to try not to get emotional. But my mom is also super controlling. <laughs> so whether or not I like it, she's there. <laughs> her spirit is with me. I admire my mother for her strength. She has this resolve in her to be very supportive of the people she loves. And even somebody new, if she sees somebody's in need, she's just that reliable person. So I love that about her. And I do try to have that as part of the culture of my business to be something that people can feel they can rely on a place of safety a place of security I don't have an establishment but that's the essence I hope my products provide for people that they can feel safe and secure in just being they are in the moment of having pickles or whatever other product they're having of mine so channeling my mom's spirit I guess would be that and, um, and, and of course, is she okay with you being in the business now? Oh, yeah. 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 Okay. At least she tells me that. Okay. I don't know what happens behind closed doors. <laughs> I don't know what she says to my dad. I don't know what kind of worries she's mulling over. But she's sometimes in the kitchen with me. She's, she's there laboring right oh, beside okay. me. I know for sure, no matter what's going on in my business, my mother will be the first one to say I'm with you on this. Okay. Very yeah. good. Margarita, same for you. Are uh, you channeling your mom's spirit? I do. My mother's still alive. I'm thankful. She has taught us so much, you know, to be strong. She's a very strong woman, a hardworking woman. It's also the same thing. We don't waste. Mm -hmm. We make everything use of it. Waste is not in our dictionary. We have to make well use of our food and be thankful and share it. My mother is shocked because I'm the baby one. Actually, that's my name at home, baby. And she said, I can't believe it. I wouldn't thought that you would be the one to be cooking mole and be making these big productions of food. And she keeps teaching me, and um, I'm so proud to be her daughter. Oh, that's great. So now passing this on, because you all took from your moms and yes. then adapted, and then now... What happens to the next generation, Margarita? Your son's all into it. My <laughs> son is all into it. It came to a point we moved to the States in for only two years. Here we are 23 years after. And at one point, he didn't want to eat mole again. Two years went by, and three years, I made mole, and then he said, oh, 
what happened to me? What happened to me? How did I stop liking mole? And, and then later on, he came with the idea of let's make tamales because there's no tamales in Boston. And, I, and he said, let's make the mole. It will be our mole signature tamal. And he started making mole and said, oh, my gosh, this is a long process and it's hardworking. And I said, yes, that's why we appreciate more the flavors and the taste. Okay, so your recipes are safe. Your mom's recipes are exactly. going on. Okay. All right, Blonde Beauchamp, what about you? Who are you going to pass it on to? I don't have children yet. <laughs> I do aspire to have this part of my business plan. Um, <laughs> they say you should integrate your personal goals with your business plan because right. it's all one package. You can't separate it, especially as entrepreneurs. We can't separate our personal lives from our business. Right. So my plan is to, yeah, formally pass down what I have. I have nieces and nephew, a nephew right now that I love so much. And uh, we have a very close-knit family. So whoever the next generation is, I hope they will take what this Haiti offers and run with it. If they decide to be hands-on with it, I do intend for this to be a long-lasting business. So if they are enamored with it, I hope they come in and they're like, boom, hands-on. So however they can interpret the recipe, if they decide to do that themselves, then I would encourage it as long as it doesn't totally go off the path of being Haitian. So I, I hope I am able to be a good steward over this where they could pick it up and run with it as well. Okay. Now, Emily, you have a slightly different situation because you and your sister are together in this, so maybe both of you can pass it down. You have double the number of people perhaps to pass it down to, maybe, or um, not. Yeah, no, so we don't have children yet. We both have two dogs who definitely appreciate our cooking. <laughs> it's a little hard for them to handle themselves in the kitchen. But no, passing down history and recipes and just that spirit that my family has been carrying for years um, is so important. Like both of you said, you know, our moms are such strong women. And as immigrants to this country, she paved the way for everything that I have right now. And I am so, so thankful and grateful for everything that my family has given. Um, and so I think it's really important that we keep on the history and keep on telling stories and cooking in the kitchen. So, you know, our kids and our families know what it was like for us. Um, you know, food will always be a staple in my family. The kitchen is always, you know, the most popular room in the house. So we'll always be feasting. We'll always be sharing stories and talking about what incredible grandparents my kids had. Well, every day is Mother's Day in your businesses. So <laughs> I wonder if you could pick one dish that you, when you eat it, you think of your mom, Emily. My mom loved soups and noodle soups, and in Cantonese culture, it's very nurturing. It's like, oh, you haven't slept in days? Like, have a bowl of soup. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, But one dish that reminds me most of my mom is this papaya soup. I keep talking about these fruit soups, but it's, it's <laughs> really delicious. her signature. It's a papaya soup with peanuts and uh, chicken feet, and it's just mm. the bone broth is so delicious, and with the papaya, it's sweet, and there's great texture from the chicken feet and from the peanuts. It's... It's delicious mm. and it's so nurturing you know mm. in the winter you're sick and you're like I just want you know no, not not chicken noodle soup like give me some papaya chicken feet soup <laughs> what dish do you eat when you think of your mom blonde Blanchard? chaka mm. it's a dish called chaka spelled t-c-h-a-k-a I hope <laughs> I spelled that right because there will be Haitians coming on me if I don't <laughs> chaka is my favorite dish because 
I've never had it anywhere else that's as good as my mom's. Mm. And I've met people, I've met other Haitians who said either they've never had it before or they've had it and they hate it. And I was like, you need to eat my mama's chaka. So it's a, it's what is it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's, um, I would say it's kind of like a chili, but it has dried corn, has beans. Mm-hmm. It has, um, it's made with a smoked ham hock. My mom adds greens to hers. And also it's made with squash, mm-hmm. like a butternut squash. I think I may be missing an ingredient, I feel like. But in any case, it's very hearty. It's like a stew. And yeah, you hold it in your hand in a bowl, that that comfortable feeling of having a warm bowl in your hand and every bite being delicious. And if you can get a tender piece of the ham hock, it's like that is the explosion. That is the bonus of the dish. Um, my mom, I don't know anybody who makes it better than her. I don't know I can make it better than her. Um, so that's, that's a very special. And she only makes it like twice a year. Mm. Sounds labor-intensive. That's probably why. <laughs> yeah, that's probably why I don't eat it. Margarita, what dish brings to mind your mom when you eat it? Oh, my gosh. Chiles en nogada. Mm. Chiles en nogada is a traditional plate that is served in the month of August. Mm. The nuns created for an archbishop of Spain. It's intensive labor. You have to clean walnuts, like uh, two, 300 walnuts, peel them by hand, and then create the stuffing of the chiles, of the chile poblanos. It has fruits, pork, chicken broth, uh, cilantro, tomato, garlic, onion. And then you roast the poblanos, and you clean them, not with water, just with your hand, stuffed mm. with the picadillo that we just made, it, and then egg batter, and then make the sauce of the chiles en nogada. It's a white sauce with uh, cheese, goat cheese, the walnuts, a uh, little bit of liqueur, sugar, and you pour that sauce on top of the chile poblano, and then you decorate it with parsley leaves and pomegranate. Is mm-hmm. Those are the three colors of our flag. Beautiful. That's what That's it, a lot of work. It's a, <laughs> it's like a That's lot why of your work. mom's doing it. That's <laughs> why. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm impressed with all three of you and with the spirit of your mom's that shines through all of your food and food products. Contact information for all of your restaurant and your food products and your pop-up restaurant will be on our website so people can find you and enjoy all that I've been able to taste. And it's all delicious, by the way. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. Blonde Beauchamp is the founder of This Haiti. Emily Chin is the co-owner of Double Chin, which she runs with her sister, Gloria. And Margarita Corretto is the main chef at Mexican pop-up tamale restaurant, Mr. Tamole, which she runs with her son. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mama said there'll be days like this, there'll be days.